Okay, so I'm estimating about five minutes to find the key. Yeah, there's so many keys in The Shining, though. Where do we start? I've never seen The Shining. Is it really scary? Uh, I have to watch it through my fingers. It's the Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. Hello and welcome to Popcorn Digest, the podcast about the films you love, and let's face it, some you don't. I'm your host, Gareth Green, and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time Game Boy groupie, Andrew Raphael. I had a Game Boy Color and I played it three times. (laughs) And today we're searching for eggs, but not of the chocolate kind. Or the vibrating kind that your mum keeps under her bed. (laughs) As we jump into the Oasis with Ready Player One. But is this trip down memory lane a nostalgic blast? Or does Ready Player One's barrage of nostalgic nonsense blast us out of its arsehole? (laughs) Find out after the trailer. My name's Wade Watts. My dad picked that name because it sounded like a superhero's alter ego. Like Peter Parker or Bruce Banner. But he died when I was a kid, my mom too. And I ended up here. Sitting here in my tiny corner of nowhere. There's nowhere left to go. Nowhere. Except the Oasis. A whole virtual universe. People come to the Oasis for all the things they can do. But they stay because of all the things they can be. Can you feel this? Um, Yeah. It's the only place that feels like I mean anything. The Oasis was the brainchild of James Halliday. Hello. If you're watching this, I'm dead. I created a hidden object, an Easter egg. The first person to find the egg will inherit half a trillion dollars and total control of the oasis itself. Who is this Parzible, and how the hell is he winning? Find him. This isn't just a game. I'm talking about actual life and death stuff. The Oasis, the world's most important economic resource. It's nothing less than a war for control of the future. Welcome to the rebellion, Wade. Like many of you, I only came here to escape. But I found something much bigger than just myself. Are you willing to fight? Help us save the Oasis. Remember the 80s? Remember Back to the Future? Remember The Shining? Remember Game Boys? Remember Overwatch? Remember The Iron Giant? Remember Battletoads? Remember Alien? Remember Michael Bay's Teenage Mutant Ninja abortions? Remember Akira? Remember Buckaroo Bunt? Actually, no one remembers that. <laughs> Remember Joran Duran? Remember Take On Me? Remember Batman? Remember Tron? Remember Mad Max? Remember Star Wars? 
Remember Space Invaders? Remember when Steven Spielberg made Jurassic Park? Remember Chucky? Remember Battlestar Galactica? Good, because now that you've remembered all that, you've technically already seen Ready Player One, and I just saved you two hours of your life. <laughs> <laughs> Father of the modern blockbuster Steven Spielberg is back to direct up to 28% of Ready Player One, <laughs> a plug-in-and-play adventure movie that takes us to the Oasis, a VR gaming space for the world's basement dwellers. Ty Sheridan is Parsifal, an 80s pop culture obsessed dickbag who finds himself on a journey to collect all three Easter eggs left behind by the now dead creator of the Oasis, Halliday. But is Ready Player One really an accurate depiction of gamer culture? I mean, I didn't hear anyone say the N word, the F word, or the R word. <laughs> and unlike most gaming platforms, no one on the Oasis is banging my mum. <laughs> so. <laughs> so, Andy. Ready Player One. Yeah. Is this a film that you had seen before now? No, no. It was a film I I wouldn't say actively avoided, but it just wasn't something that... You actively avoided this. Yeah, it, it was, just wasn't <laughs> something I was particularly interested in, just because mm -hmm. I knew what it would entail. I think I even spoke to you and, and Aiden about it. Yeah. You've read the book, haven't you, as well? I tried to read the book. I think Aiden read Aiden the book. Aiden read as well. the book. Yeah. I tried to read the book and I couldn't get through it. Yeah. So even with that, I'd kind of been forewarned <laughs> yeah. what it would be like. And obviously, with the trailers and the marketing, it, it gives you a good idea of what it is anyway, mm -hmm. for better or worse. So I had quite low expectations coming into this. So I think for me, it was more about examining maybe the other aspects of the film rather than the stuff that people always talk about. All the nostalgia bait. Yeah, yeah. And in that respect, it was a lot better than I was expecting it to be. Yes. So uh, that's where I'm at with this film at the moment. But that's as far as I will go right now. <laughs> yes. I will say, as I've just alluded to, I, um, I was past the book by our good friend Aidan and... It came with some high praise, but I kept reading the first chapter or two chapters over and over again, a couple of tries. This is before there was even talk of a film coming out, mm. and I just I just couldn't get it. I was rolling my eyes. It very much had the same experience um, as I've had recently with another book, that Anno Dracula by Kim Newman, which is just like reference after reference after reference. Yeah, yeah. And that just becomes the bulk, the meat and potatoes of your story. And... It was so tiring to read from the off. And I mean, I was born and raised on 80s pop culture, as were you. We were yeah, just yeah. of that generation. But it was just so tiring to read it. All this over and over, like, pretty much, do you remember this? Well, this character remembers it. Do you remember that? Well, that character remembers it as well. And I just never got into it. And then when the book became something of a meme online and people started to post excerpts from later on in the story and about like Ernest Klein's gross depiction of women and stuff like that and his musings on the porn industry. I thought, you know what, I think I think I dodged a bullet there. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> yeah. And then with this film coming out, it was a Steven Spielberg film. It felt odd that he was making this film and I I was curious about it. The idea of Steven Spielberg making a film about a story which is essentially constantly referencing Steven Spielberg's greatest era of filmmaking mm. in many people's eyes. Would it be too self-referential, too wink-wink? 
But I would say that if you were a producer or a writer on this film, or like the writer of the book, this is like the best case scenario that you're ever going to get for this material. Yeah, somebody yeah. of the caliber of Steven Spielberg making it. Normally, I mean, I think who would make it? It would be like a Russo Brothers film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even the whole writing and the fact that it got picked up as a film a year before it was even published. Yeah. All that seems to be very calculated and and yes, cynical. Yeah. I mean, anything that includes that many references can't be not seen as being a calculated marketing ploy. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's like, if I have all these things, then people will like it. So it was something, it was a property that always puzzled me. Yeah, and like yourself, it puzzled me even further when someone like Steven Spielberg wants to make a film of it. Yeah. I'm not sure that it's one of those things where he was maybe kind of had his arm bent to do it sort of thing. I think so, judging by where he was in his career at that point. Yeah. And what had just happened with other films. He needed a hit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But the odd thing for me was the real eye-opening experience with this film for me was going to see it on IMAX yeah. with my cousin who at the time was 13 years old and she had no clue about the references the to the 70s to the 80s early 90s she had just the barest idea of what was being referenced and when and i could see this kind of like look of her go from excited to kind of glazed over at a point in the film and yeah. afterwards she was like i didn't get it it was yeah, yeah. fun but what was this and what was that and that was kind of like a real eye-opener for me to see it through her eyes a little bit. I mean, I was already kind of like bored of this kind of self-referential way of making films because we were already entrenched in it by that point as well. As It's 2018 when this was released, is it? Yeah, it was, yeah. So, yeah, um, just before we go any further, I guess it's time for us to lay some context and uh, just say where Spielberg was really in terms of his career when this film went into production. Now, I, I have just mentioned something along those lines but we can't really talk about ready player one without talking about the failure or the falling apart of his film robopocalypse i think yeah, it was going yeah. to be called with uh, chris hemsworth and was it anne hathaway yeah something like that feels like a very distant memory now <laughs> exactly and i often get them mixed up with francis ford coppola's film as well megalopolis because they have very similar names <laughs> <laughs> If they could have made them both at the same time and then done a crossover feature, uh, that would have been great. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like Robopocalypse was another film that was based on another pop culture book at the time about the world being taken over by AI and robots and that kind of thing, mm. but a rather kind of like Apple Shop version of that. And as I was saying, it was going to star Chris Hemsworth. It got shockingly close to production. I mean, I think it was at like the end of pre-production when they closed it down. Yeah. It was easier to close down because I believe, much like with Ready Player One, a lot of it was going to take place in a volume-esque environment. So yeah. it was all going to be done in computers. So that film fell apart. And I guess he just simply then had an opening in his diary. And it wasn't long after that finished that it said that he was moving on to Ready Player One. I think that was his drive to make this kind of his event film in that nature. Yeah, I think also the failure of the BFG. 
Oh, of definitely course, had something yeah. to do with that need for a hit. Because I think I read that this is the first film to make over $100 million domestically for him since Lincoln. So you'd had a bit of a dry spell box office-wise prior to yeah. this film. So he needed something that was very commercial and had a an almost guaranteed audience yeah, I think Spielberg wanted to maybe do something that was a bit safer in the fact that it was a more current book yes. and it had all these references. And also the fact that he could make another film in the post-production period, which is maybe something he also more wanted to make, which was the post. Yeah. So I think there are a few reasons why he decided to do this. Yeah, so I think Robopocalypse was in like 2013 when it was going to go yeah, into production. Yeah. And then he, I'm sure he signed on for Ready Player One shortly after, but ended up making the BFG before then. Mm-hmm. And much like he normally does, he, he has a habit of making like two films in a year. And it's normally like one light and whimsical film and then one serious one. Yeah. And he's been doing that throughout his career. But I have a question. I mean, looking at this film, talking about the BFG, thinking about other films in Steven Spielberg's career of recent, I'm not going to fall into the trap of saying... Is he a director that's lost his mojo? I've seen other films that he's made, like The Fablemans, and really enjoyed it. But when was the last time he made a film of this nature and it being not successful at the box office, but enjoyable, all-round, heavy hitter of a film? I don't know if it's just me, but I feel like that time has passed. He's not got his finger on the pulse anymore in terms of the Ford Quadrant movie. Yeah, I was going to say something like Minority Report or something like that. Yes, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, Minority Report, that's back in 2002. Yeah. Because uh, even other films, I think, that was supposed to be that. Like, your War of the Worlds yeah. isn't that. No. But ever since then, you've got, like, Indiana Jones, Kingdom of Crystal Skulls, Adventures of Tintin, the BFG, Ready Player One, and then that's it, really. He's moving certainly more now into doing... Which I think is personally better for him at this point in his career, but he's moving more into doing those personal projects. Even stuff like West Side Story, which I know has been something of a failure in terms of the box office, but it's been well-received by most people that have seen it. The Fablemans, which is a very personal story as well. And even being involved in TV series such as the Napoleon one, which is an adaption of Stanley Kubrick's work. Yeah. But yeah, so moving back to Ready Player One... As I say, you've had no experience with the book. No, no. I did uh, briefly read the outline on Wikipedia uh, just to compare the story. And it is actually quite different because of the, the nature of the story. The filmmakers had to clear every single thing that you see. Therefore, yes. the references that are in the book can't always be replicated wholesale and again there was that issue of balancing the steven spielberg references as well so they had to switch out a lot of the challenges and major set pieces that revolved around certain properties and kind of streamlined the story i think as well it seemed like the story was a little bit more convoluted than it actually appears in the film so yeah so that means that you see properties like war games being dropped from the yeah. the story which is a very prominent reference in the book and also pac-man as one of the challenges as well according yeah. to the wikipedia for the page dungeons and dragons i think as well dungeons and dragons yeah and in terms of the character as well 
it appears that they've kind of done some character work in regards to Parsifal into not making him as much of a dick and a douchebag yeah. <laughs> as he is in the books. Uh, one thing that I did find out in terms of um, some trivia on this is that Moby was <laughs> inquired yeah. about making it into a movie himself and then found out it was already in production with Steven Spielberg. Ah, yes, that well-known director, Moby. <laughs> Moby. <laughs> He's just chatting shit, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember, even at the time, remember reading, location-wise, they were shooting it in Birmingham. So, uh, yes, all that stuff is quite amusing in the film to see. It's like, oh, yeah, it's definitely Birmingham. <laughs> definitely not Columbus, Ohio. It is. It's funny to me that 2050 dystopian future is untouched Birmingham. <laughs> it's a really shitty-looking, undeveloped Birmingham as well. Yeah. Like It looks like the old bullring and stuff like that. There is a scene in this film as well where they go on a rooftop. We see the skyline for the first time. And he's like, wow, it's so beautiful up here. And it cuts to, like, the Birmingham skyline. <laughs> like, say, so you could just see the ball rink in the yeah, corner. I think they put a couple of Columbus, Ohio buildings in there as well. Just to, Yeah, they had. Just yeah. to sell it. <laughs> Maybe uh, John Moore was uh, guest directing that scene. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, as well, they use one particular street in Birmingham hundred times yeah. from a million different angles which you see in films all the time when you know when you know a location or you get used to seeing a film on a certain location you know they kind of like maximize what yeah. they're shooting and when but this particular street was just like over and over and over again the same bridge yeah. the same street i just couldn't stop noticing it so i'm going to jump straight into the film at this yeah, point yeah. andy because i'm very eager to know what you thought of ready player one yeah so take it away what are your thoughts on this masterpiece, this magnum opus? It's what Steven Spielberg's career has been building to. Yeah, I mean, I think the interesting thing, if you strip off all of the references, oh. it is essentially a very standard Spielberg adventure film. Yeah. Not a particularly remarkable one, not a particularly terrible one either. The characters are quite shallow you know they're not particularly uh deeply written or anything like that but mm -hmm. all the pieces work together it's paced quite well yeah it has those references it's maybe a little bit more restrained than the book is with those because a lot of the things are more in the background yeah you know there are major set pieces that focus on things but the majority of the hundreds of references are just more for window dressing rather than I think the book just uses them a lot more centrally. Yes, yeah. It feels more cobbled together from those references than the film does. And it's perfectly fine and enjoyable whilst you're watching it. But then afterwards, and I say it's only been about 24 hours since I've finished the film, maybe less, it's one of those films that's really hard to recall. Yeah, which makes it terrible for a podcast, really. And also, yeah. And also, <laughs> it's one of those films where you just go, hang on a minute what was that about and what were they doing there and things like that. And it's like the actual groundwork of the world building <laughs> and how things are put together and the status of certain groups and why they're there and stuff that it just didn't make an awful lot of sense to me. It felt quite shaky. And I think that's partly the skill of Spielberg that you can, whilst you're watching it, make you forget about those things. It's only afterwards that you go, oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> yes, yeah. So, 
I think for me, the thing that saves the film is Spielberg himself and him relying on his own skill and instincts, which have never left him. No. So yeah, it's a bit of a weird one because it's not a film that's like, it's not an awful film. And it's not a film that I go, ah, that shit, or, you know. Yeah. But it's kind of one of those films where it's like, yeah, I appreciated the Spielbergy bits of it, but the rest of it I can take or leave. It's one of those things, yeah, just when you start thinking about it, it starts to crumble as mm-hmm. a concept. And I think that's just down to the weak source material that obviously generated yeah. a lot of buzz, but it wasn't a particularly amazing book, to be honest. And they've made the best of it, sort of thing. Yeah, that's the greatest problem with it, is that this film is the best-case scenario for that material. Yeah, yeah. And when I went to see it on the cinema, I did come out and say that it's a wonder, that it's enjoyable as it is, despite having loads of faults, that it can still be enjoyed. Only Spielberg could do something like that. And I gave it, like, three out of five. Yeah, yeah. Because I did think it was dumb, it was loud, but it was somewhat inventive and it had some charm going for it but the problem with me and this particular watch is that i've seen the film a couple of times now this is like i think my third time watching it and on this particular watch i think as well considering the last five years of cinema that we've had as well and where cinema has gone and where pop culture has moved in terms of it's not really, it's stagnated to a point where there is really a crisis in Hollywood at the moment about what to do. We've had this whole multiverse thing come about where it's become very popular for these franchise names to begin devouring themselves and their own lore and their own culture that they've created. That I think watching this film in that context now, the sheen has come off it for me. Yeah, I wouldn't go out and say that Steven Spielberg has made... A bad film. I think he's made a film to his best abilities as a filmmaker with that material. But I think the kind of rottenness of the material itself is now is not something I can ignore anymore. And there are some things with the filmmaking side of things, though, that do bother me. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I really liked about the material from the off, and it's the striking imagery, it was the front cover of the book, And it's well described in the book itself as well. And that is the way that the real world looks. And this whole idea of trailer parks being built upwards. And this kind of look to the world. My issue with this film is that the realisation of that, it does look cool. But it looks, the real world kind of looks a little too cool dystopia. And not Mm. dystopia dystopia. No. You know, it's like the real world itself has that unreal sheen to it that needed to be taken away for this kind of balance of real world to escapism game VR world. And because for me, we have this style of filmmaking, it's that Janusz Kaminski, that kind of lighting, that kind of unreal, yeah, unnatural yeah. lighting that he does where everything's been blown out. It looks a bit minority reporty almost as well. I felt this time that this whole bouncing back and forth didn't work because of that, because there's not enough really to differentiate these two worlds. They both feel like unreal fantasy worlds. Yeah. (laughs) Kind of thing. And it's asking us to buy into one of them being real when both of them look pretty fake. Yeah, and I think when I saw the trailer all those years back and then watched the film now, I had the impression that 
that everything was stacks. I didn't realize that a lot of the city still existed and it yeah, kind of weird, just right? looked like a little bit run down, but it still looked all right. Yeah. And you had these stacks, which looked like they were about one acre big. <laughs> it didn't look yes. very, you know, you could tell that they shot it on a car park, which they did. Which they did. Yeah. I remember seeing the set photos. <laughs> Having said that, though, I think with the Yanis Kaminsky stuff, and I've mentioned this before, how I'm not too keen on Yanis Kaminsky as a cinematographer. And I think ever since AI has had his... AI sci-fi button stuck on his camera. <laughs> I think the weird thing with Janusz Kaminski is the fact that those weren't the first films that he worked on with Spielberg. You've got Schindler's no. List, The Lost World, Lost World, yeah. Amistad, and Saving Private Ryan beforehand that didn't look like that. So I don't know what's happened. And for me personally, it's put me off watching quite a few of the later Spielberg films because I really cannot stand Same. that aesthetic. And it, it, for me, it's a, it puts a bit of a dampener on that section of his career. Having said that, I think this is one of the better-looking Janusz Kaminski films where it's not too offensive in terms of its backlighting. Yeah. There is a bit of it, but there's not as much as, say... War of the Worlds. Yes, that's got lots of it, yeah. Is is worse for that and War Horse or something like that, which mm -hmm. just doesn't look real at all. And like we said, the earlier grade of Kingdom of the Crystal School, which has been redone for 4K and looks a lot better, but still has that weirdness, yeah. especially when it comes to the, any lighting source that's on camera. The thing about it that really bothers me, it really puts a bee in my bonnet, which yeah. is that... I think his movement of camera, him and Spielberg match up really well in that regard. They do things with the camera that is incredibly technical, but feel very effortless. And often it's times things that they've come up with on the day together. Yeah. And the yeah. way he moves the camera is really quite beautiful at times and really quite lyrical and the way that they tell the story together. And I think that's what Spielberg's in love with. But his lighting, the way that he, like you say, he backlights and the way that the lighting is always so many steps above where it should be, it takes away so much of that. It takes away so much of the ability to be able to appreciate that. You're constantly distracted by those things. Exactly. And I think that's where, for me, the live action portions worked best in the, um, is it the IOI? Is yes, that the company yeah. of the IOI building because there was there wasn't very much of that backlighting going on because it was such a big space. Yeah, yeah, and a big interior, almost like windowless space, so you couldn't do that. And that's the only time when it really worked fine because you could have those amazing camera movement, but without the annoying backlights. Yeah, okay, yeah. Whereas, say, if you contrast that, where you have the shots of him going through the stacks. And every now and again, mm -hmm. you have like, oh, lens flare, lens flare, glare, 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 glare. That's the specific part was where it was bothering me because I really love that image of the stacks, but it doesn't feel real or tangible in this world. No. I think something that could have helped it out in that regard, though, in terms of the differentiation between these two worlds is not even so much in the cinematography, but but it's also in the, um, like the color palette that's used. And if you're going for that kind of minority report, that kind of like, as you say the year 2001 era sci-fi setting on your camera, you know? Yeah. <laughs> if you're doing that for the real world, I think the Oasis should have had far more colour and colour depth. Instead, it is all just kind of like neon blue and purple. 
Yeah. It's not different enough from the real world. I mean, the final battle takes place on an ice plane, and it's just like this basic stock blue environment. But you have all of these characters from all of these different worlds as avatars for people, and there's no colour to it whatsoever. It's all just kind of desaturated neon. Yeah. And that bothered me in terms of the two worlds this time around. I mean, I will agree. I do think it is like in terms of the backlighting. Yeah, I, I would agree that for Kaminsky, it is definitely one of his better films for dialing that in a bit. Yeah. But in terms of like just the realization of these two worlds, I needed something more. Why are people escaping one kind of blue dystopia for another one that is like a neon blue dystopia? <laughs> it's, it's a bit weird. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> a lot of it just looked like pop culture Tron. Yes, yeah. I, it's one of those things as well, it's like, and this is something that's maybe more topical because we are potentially entering that era. I'm not sure how well it's going to work because as we've discussed in the past with things like VR, where they were talking about this kind of stuff in the early 90s, but the technology wasn't there yet. And this might be the time but it could be another false start. We It's difficult to predict. But i tell you the thing that bothers me about this film, and I think it's trying to do something, but it never gets there, is this not meant to be a cautionary tale? Yeah. And the biggest failing of this film for me is the last 30 seconds of the film. Oh, where it just kind of like very offhandedly says, oh, and by the way, we're closing it down for two days a week. Yeah. The end. <laughs> because... What I interpreted beforehand as the message of the film and the message that Halliday was trying to put across is that, yes, I invented this game and I'm glad that everyone enjoyed it, but game's over. Time to get back into the real world now and start making things better. That was what I thought it was leading to. And the fact that it didn't go there was a bit weird. And also the fact that I don't feel like it referenced enough of that cautionary stuff because this stuff... I mean, I'm definitely old man shouting at cloud here. No, I'm I'm with you 100%. I know where you're going with this, and I am. <laughs> There's so many things that are coming out now that are going to be seismic shifts, and whether they're, I mean, whether they're good or not is irrelevant because I don't think hardly any of them are are good. Mm. None of them feel particularly positive, and it feels the more like it plays into the IOI side of things. <laughs> but yeah, it was kind of surprised me that there wasn't enough made of that in the film given that it was only made you know five years ago it seems a bit naive it does it, that was the instance where it felt like yeah this has been made by an older filmmaker he mm-hmm. maybe doesn't understand the culture of this and maybe its impact yeah the call is coming from inside the house yeah <laughs> almost he's too close to it especially if, if you compare the the plots and the stories and stuff it's, it's a film that's been heavily rewritten from the source materials so there was opportunity for that and the fact that they didn't do that is surprising and yeah the the ending it just feels a bit like a cop-out it does i think again another thing for me that really reared its head this particular time is It's got very little in the way of commentary and very little in the way of satire. Yeah. In terms of the references themselves, for example, we take that final fight, which is just a smorgasbord of video game and 70s, 80s and 90s references to pop culture. There's nothing actually being said with any of that material. For example, I mean, I I use this as something I was going to talk about anyway, but the usage of the Iron Giant in this film. Let's talk about that. So, yeah. 
we have a character from a film that is specifically an anti-gun, anti-war film. The yeah. whole point of the Iron Giant is for this thing that has been built for one purpose, which is to cause destruction. He is a weapon of mass destruction, but because he's sentient, he comes to the understanding that literally he says it in the film, I am not a gun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not an instrument of war. And yeah. in this film, that's all he fucking does. I can't imagine what Brad Bird must have thought watching this film. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hey? And in this film, they have him fight Mecha Godzilla. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. So, but I'm not too fussed about the surface of that. For example, I understand that this is not the Iron Giant. It's somebody using it as their avatar. They've probably looked at that. It's a mod. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And gone, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we made an Iron Giant and fought a war with it? Blah, blah, blah. People do that shit all the time on games at the moment. That's fine. What bothers me is like, there are so many clever ways that that could have been interpreted and that could have been done that still stayed true to the Iron Giant. Like, it would have been, for me personally, if there had been like some sort of restriction for the Iron Giant, like, they bought it and made it as a mod and one of the coding things is that it can't be used for violent destruction <laughs> so yeah. they're constantly trying to think of ways to use it like every time they try and fire at something it says i am not a gun yeah you know yeah. over and over again so they're constantly trying to think of ways to use it but in order to find non-violent ways to use it to keep on accidentally causing mass destruction you could do something like that with it, which would be funnier. And he did that kind of like that satire, that kind of play on the all on the whole idea of it's not just a reference, it's a story point. Instead, everything's just surface level. Everything's just here's X, here's Y, here's Z. And yeah. there's no depth to that. <laughs> if we look at another film that does exactly this, which is Who Framed Roger Rabbit? That has references galore, but it all feels like it's part and parcel of creating this grand tapestry and this entire story. This film doesn't have the same depth that that film has, or the same kind of witty script. It needed it needed somebody with that kind of wit to come in and yeah, really make yeah. something of it. And again, with the mechanics of the world and that lack of satire, it's like one of the big things that I didn't understand was with the IOI company they had this whole department of, are they called the oologists? The Halliday experts? The Halliday geeks? Yeah. And I was just wondering why they were all there. Why are you working for this evil corporation? Yeah. And there was nothing made of that. There was nothing, these were people who were like Wade. They're like corporate sellout Wade. Yeah, but there was nothing sinister made out of it, which was odd considering no. everything else in IOI was made to look sinister. And it was just really weird. And it got even weirder when it got to the point where they were rooting for our, our hero characters. And it's like, what are you doing here? What is going on here? Like, yeah. This doesn't make any sense. And also, nothing on that was followed up. So that was a huge issue for me with those characters because mm -hmm. I thought something was going to come of it and more was going to be there was going to be more context to that because not that there was any particular like character that stood out, but they were featured quite heavily in the second half of the film. So yeah, it was just a bit weird, especially when you contrast that with the centers, the repayment centers. The kind, yeah. I forgot what they're called now, but they are like repayment centers. That is an element of the film that I really like the whole idea that there is this kind of sinister underbelly that almost like the credits in game have become real world, currency yeah and if you build up a debt 
this is where you have to pay off that debt. And it's this this weird cube. I don't understand what they're doing or why they have to do this specific thing. Like, yeah. why, The sinister thing that I like about it is, for example, we see at some point that they're burying these charges for an explosion. There's no reason for them to be heavy. It seems like it's almost cruelty that they've been programmed so that they carry an actual real-world weight. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it's stuff like that that I wish, like, oh, God, I wish more had been made of, of that and what it is to be this. I mean, the, one of the other big questions for me was, obviously, one, how IOI, one, were able to do that, considering it's not their platform, and two, who's actually running Oasis? Oh, God, I don't know. Like, support-wise, because yeah. it can't just run, it's, you know, it, and even like in the time frame that it's set, like 2045, no fucking way that it's going to be self-automated. <laughs> it's powered by the electric energy that's made when every time the ghost of Holiday fucks the ghost of his little kid. Yeah. <laughs> that he keeps in his cellar. <laughs> that's an odd thing to see. <laughs> yeah, and, and obviously the, the whole thing with uh, Ogden Morrow and being the curator and how he tapped into that. And also him like cosplaying as the butler all the time. Yeah, so like I said, it's one of those films where Spielberg's very good at keeping that pace going. So you only really yeah. start to think about those things towards the end of the film or afterwards. The logistics of the world don't really work that well. And when you actually just stand back and look at it. And yeah, it just didn't have enough for me personally. Just didn't have enough of that commentary and that satire that I think was really needed for this kind of piece because I feel for me it should have been been made a bit more self-aware mm. which is weird considering what the whole thing's about. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, that's it. It's like it's such an obvious step to take to make it just that touch more aware and that touch more satirical about its place in its ideas on pop culture and that kind of thing. Like mm. I also want to know why like how this world became so entrenched with 80s pop culture i know it's because halliday was interested in it and that's what led everyone to it else to it but it also has that effect of nullifying between the 90s and when this film takes place essentially like nullifies like 40 years worth of pop culture to nothing like it's essentially saying there's nothing else of note that's come out since then or yeah. anything that you need to think about like, if I was to ask you as well, in this film, there are flashbacks. When do those flashbacks take place? Mm. I would say, like, it looks like something out of an 80s and 90s film all the time, other than the technology in the actual, like, you see computers yeah. at one point. But, for example, there's a scene of Halliday as, I guess, like a 20 to 30-year-old talking to Simon Pegg. Uh, so it's Mark Rylance and Simon Pegg talking to each other in a canteen, and the way that they're dressed and the way that the scene looks you would easily say that that's in the 80s. Mm -hmm. But actually, it's like 2030 or something like that, or 2020. <laughs> it's, it feels like it's got this kind of like odd disconnect there. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the issue is that because other than the intro to the film, the film doesn't really explore the other parts of the Oasis. It's only concerned with the treasure hunt. Yes, yeah, yeah. That Halliday set up, so it's... And because the treasure hunt's all about him and his interests, it probably makes it feel more like that whole world is invested in that, when maybe it might only be a few thousand people that are interested in it. And it seemed like 
initially people were really interested in this and like it shows in the film it's been narrowed down to a, a very small band of people that are really invested in this hunt other than the uh, evil corporation it should have maybe explored more of the oasis to balance that out because yeah it does give the impression a lot of the times that this is the currency and the only thing that people are into yeah i mean what do you think of mark rowlands as that character because i wasn't sure i think that he comes across as and actually some background for this um, i should have mm. mentioned this during the context but the person at Steven Spielberg wanted to play this particular role was Gene Wilder, and he actually offered it to Gene Wilder, but he obviously wasn't fit yeah, enough yeah. or um, healthy enough to not take it because he died shortly afterwards as well. Yeah, which is probably fortunately on Gene Wilder's <laughs> front, you know. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah, he's like, "Who dodged that one <laughs> by dying?" But it's definitely going for that kind of like Willy Wonka for the modern day audience, which yeah. is specifically what what it's trying to do. I mean, even the marketing was built around that. However, I think Halliday in this and Mark Rylance's portrayal of him comes across as far too sinister. Yeah, to be the kind of warming and enigmatic presence that you need for this role. Yeah. It needs to be somebody that both feels like our main characters best friend that he's never met but also is somebody that he's trying to get to grips of understanding now i do think he gets part of that right he does have this kind of like oh he's a bit of an enigma this one but i always tend to lean on the point that but he's creepy as fuck yeah. there's something really quite creepy about him and a bit sinister and then when he points to his younger child version of himself in the room of like i like to keep him around sometimes from time to time and then the kid looks towards the screen like, help me. He has moments like that, which I'm like, oh, why is that creepy? Why is that coming across as creepy to me? And it's because of that portrayal. So yeah, I think Mark Rylance is a miscast for this role. It definitely needed somebody who could be, like it needed somebody who could do the Gene Wilder thing of being a bit menacing, but with a kind of like a little wry wink, you know, it's always in on a joke a little bit. Mark Rylance doesn't have that quality. No. So that's where I stand with him in this film. I don't mind him as an actor, but I weirdly, I think, even though people like Spielberg thinks he's a brilliant actor and he used him for a lot of films for a while, I think in the right property, he's great, but I've seen him miscast in many a role. Yeah. So that's where I stand with him. So what are your thoughts? It's an interesting one because... For a time, he, he definitely became Spielberg's go-to man for a lot of things during this period. So, I'll tell you a little story. <laughs> Gather round, children. Gather round. <laughs> so, I think it was for my A-levels. We studied Measure for Measure, the Shakespeare problem play. And this was back in 2004, just showing you my age. We actually went to London to the Globe Theatre to see a production of Measure for Measure. Okay. Which was cool in itself, because the Globe's pretty cool. Yeah, watching wonderful. Watching open-air theatre. Yeah, it wasn't the best production ever, because I think they are a little bit on the touristy side, and then obviously they're not particularly like, innovative, because they're done traditional style. And I think this production had Sophie Thompson in it. And the other lead, who was playing the Duke, I just got this feeling like he's not 
trying and he's underplaying to the point of it came off as just looking bad, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It didn't work for me whatsoever. And it felt like the laziest Shakespeare performance I've ever seen in my entire life. And it wasn't until many years afterwards that I found out that that was Mark Rylance. <laughs> I honestly knew it was going to be one of those stories where it's like, and that little boy grew up to be Albert Einstein. <laughs> it's strange that like, every single time I've ever seen him in a film, and obviously he's in things like um, Dunkirk and stuff, but he always has that thing of underplaying roles. Sometimes it works, other times it doesn't. Yeah, that's it, yeah. I don't find him to be a particularly versatile actor in that regard. So it no. puzzled me as to why... I mean, he's probably a really nice guy, which is probably why people want to work with him. But he's yes, never yeah. shown me that he's worthy of the reputation that he seems to have. So, yeah, that's my little Mark Rowland story. Because, yeah, it was just something... It, because I did see a lot of shows around that time and quite a bit of Shakespeare and that one really stood out as like yeah this guy ain't trying <laughs> at all <laughs> yeah no I, I get that as well because I think he underplays it to a point in which I would say that oftentimes in films when I see him I feel like he lacks gravity that's necessary for a lot of his performances it's when yeah. he's matched up to that kind of like that quieter role but like you say, I don't think he's got the versatility for it. And I don't think he's got the warmth for specific roles that Spielberg has cast him for. And we've seen it with the BFG and we see it here with this film yeah. where his performance is just, it's got a, that bit of distance to it, which you are meant to, to warm up to this character in such a way and he's incapable of providing you that warmth. That's what I yeah. find. And he's also got that kind of like that lack of gravity. I don't gravitate towards him because of that. It's definitely that, because it's not even like that I don't like subtle performances. I love subtle performances. Yeah, same. You know, they're often better than the, uh, you know, the Oscar bait kind of performances. But I don't know, it's too, just too little. <laughs> it's like the polar opposite of Eddie Redmayne, but they somehow have the same effect on me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that for me is just a bit of a, a mystery for me yeah yeah and also like it's weird with the willy wonka references because there's no real conflict with any of the other main characters outside of the evil corporation either no it all plays out in quite a straightforward fashion <laughs> exactly yeah and i would say as well i mean other than the repayment centers which is a big deal yeah but i would say as well with the conclusion that parcival comes to in the last 30 seconds of the story and what Ben Mendelssohn's character wants to do with the Oasis, like a line that I thought was perfect for this film, which I wish the film was just full of these lines, was when Ben Mendelssohn says about the ad space on the VR helmets. Yeah. <laughs> Where he's like, we can cover 80% of all visible space before inducing seizures. I was like, that is perfect. The whole film should be shit like this, like all the way through. I'd love a follow-up where they win. Uh, they do that. Well, wouldn't they both have the same effect, which is driving people out of the Oasis? I know. No one's logging on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One person logged in for 10 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> and instantly had a seizure. Yeah, and the stock price goes, <laughs> like that. But having said that, I really did love Ben Mendelsohn's portrayal. It was very 
for me, it was one of the only things in the real world that reminded me in the best way of those evil corporate villains like you got in 80s films. Like Robocop. <laughs> yeah, it felt a bit like Robocop. It felt a little bit like David Warner from Tron. Yes, yeah. And that was, for me, one of the only kind of real-world examples where that homage thing worked because you could tell that Ben Mendelsohn knew that. I think they even did something to his teeth to make him look whiter or more yeah. prominent and stuff. And I liked that they made more of it as well, the fact that he had that really fancy chair and he had his password on a sticky <laughs> on the side. <laughs> yeah, I love yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Like, he couldn't be further away from this world. And I love as well that his um, in-world avatar, his Oasis avatar is like Bizarro Superman. You know, yeah. it's... But I also like that Mendelssohn's carved out a little niche for himself of playing corporate douchebags. I mean, we have it with The Dark Knight Rises. We even have it in Rogue One, and we have it here as well. And it seems like he's just trying to find all corners of the universe to be a corporate douchebag. And he plays it so well. (laughs) He wants to be the new Ronnie Cox. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know whether you found this but I think it's probably been maybe cropping up more and more in his films I think like War Horse and stuff but yeah just some casting that you just wouldn't expect to be in a Spielberg film as well like it's it's weird seeing like Ralph Innocent in a role in a Spielberg film yes I will say I love seeing Ralph Innocent in anything because he seems like such an unlikely actor from let's say 20 years ago yeah to have the kind of on the rise that he's had over the last 10 years or so because he's worked with some really interesting filmmakers and some really high profile filmmakers to the point where he's become a regular bit part whenever big filmmakers come to the uk to make something he's always there for a day or two and i like that about him but yeah it's very odd to see him in this world especially Mm. because um again it's supposed to be columbus ohio but it's really birmingham yeah (laughs) casting Ralph Innocent in the role isn't going to make me forget that it's Birmingham. <laughs> in <Yeah>. fact, <laughs> I'm only going to think more that it's set in the UK. <laughs> I think it's also interesting that we're talking about this film and we've probably got so far and we've not really talked about any of the references. No. <laughs> any of the big ones, at least, anyway. To talk about that for a moment, I do... I mean, I guess I should also prefix this by saying I watched two films last night, one after the other. And uh, the first film that I watched was Fast 10, Your Seatbelts. <laughs> so I watched Fast 10, and then I waited half an hour, and then I put Ready Player One on and started taking my notes. So that kind of puts me in that frame of mind for this film. And in terms of like the constant references, by the end of that first opening chase scene, which is like the really kind of hit you over the head with everything, Yeah, that's when... I kind of like mentally checked out of all that. I was like, I'm fed up with seeing the references now to a point where this is what I was mentioning earlier. Like we see the T-Rex, for example, which is one of the few overtly like self-referential things that Steven Spielberg does. He's remarkably actually quite restrained about referencing his own material. And I think other than Back to the Future, which was a key point for the book. So it had to be for the film as well. Yeah. But my issue has always been with this film is that the references don't mean anything. And that's why they've not been talked about so far. It's because it's all surface level. I just wish I had more going for it with those references. Like, I wish having the T-Rex on that road meant something. I wish it was a... They had some commentary about that or anything at all. Anything to just 
get your grips on it. This seems to be a world that the characters all, with the exception of Artemis, Samantha, who has some ideas about how the world should change and that kind of thing, and real-world implications, etc., etc. But I wish there were more characters in here that were a little bit more knowledgeable about what all of this means to have it here. Like, as I say, where is the commentary? Where is the somebody saying, you know, how fucking strange it is that they can have Battlestar Galactica and the Solarco and, and that in a tin in your garage kind of thing. It's all just so matter-of-fact. And it's just like... Yeah. Like I say, said before, his X is Y is Z. Let's move on. It doesn't mean anything. I just wish it meant something. Yeah. But I'm trying to think of what my favourite references in the film, like if there's one that works for me. Are there any that stand out for you? Um, I think the main one that stands out for me really is the Shining one. Oh, shit, of course. Because it is a much more self-contained. It's not like trying to shove a ton of stuff in your face. It's more yeah. focused on one particular thing. And also, I like that when you get there, it follows the character that doesn't know much about it or doesn't really know anything about it. So yes. they're discovering it for the first time. That's a Spielberg touch. That is like Spielberg doing it right. Yeah. Like, who are we going to follow into this world? The person that knows least and hates horror films. Yeah. Considering how they like integrated new footage and the old footage and made it match and everything, I thought that was pretty well done. I was a bit disappointed when they went into the ballroom and it was something else. but Yeah, and it's like Haunted Mansion. Yeah, it was like Eddie Murphy Haunted Mansion, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I liked the effort they put into making that. And it, yeah, it just felt a bit more... A bit more wholesome, I'd say, in terms of yeah. how it uses this. But yeah, that's the only bit for me that worked with the use of the references because it was more focused. And it, I mean, they probably could have done more with using the story to actually find the key because whilst I liked all of it, they didn't use an awful lot of actual story stuff from The Shining to no. get you to the key. Yeah, I think that was the big stumbling point of that sequence, but I liked the rest of it. Yeah, I think the thing is that I like about it is that it's really kind of faithfully and lovingly brought to life by Spielberg because mm. Spielberg and Kubrick were very, very, very good friends. And it's clear that Spielberg has a lot of love and respect for what he's doing here and what he's using it's not something that he's doing just like haphazardly however it starts to feel a bit gross when you get like you say the haunted mansion-esque stuff going on and a zombie knife fight in room 237 it feels mm -hmm. a little bit weird then and it feels like this has been a step too far somewhere here and as you mentioned when it gets to the end of it there's actually not that much that's been taken from The Shining in order to unravel the mystery. Which in itself, I get using The Shining because it's an enigmatic film. It's literally a maze. It's a puzzle in itself in order to be solved. Yeah. The only thing they get from it is the photo. The photo that they end up splitting in two. Yeah, and it takes one character finding it by accident on the first run. <laughs> yeah. I think that was the only one that really worked for me. Everything else I've kind of forgotten about. I think, I think the only thing I remember was the Chucky thing. Oh, the Chucky doll, actually, yeah. And then it's just because someone said it's fucking Chucky. Fucking Chucky. <laughs> <That's>, yeah. <laughs> I've written in my notes here that it's the only reference of that whole section of the film. For me, again, like, 
that's the part of the film where it loses me again because it just becomes a mishmash of things happening. Now, I would actually say that during the action sequences, I don't feel like I'm watching a Spielberg film at times. Mm. There are moments, like in this film, like I say, as like choosing to go through the Shining section with somebody who's not a fan of horror films or has seen the film, that's a great Spielberg idea, you know, like following that mm. character and what he does with that. Yeah, totally. And there are moments like that do feel very Spielbergian. But when it actually comes to the action, now, there's not a shot in this film that has the same resonance with me as, let's say, and I'm not going to use a live-action Spielberg film. I'm going to use another film that's been shot in that kind of volumey space to give it that kind of like a more like-minded comparison. But for all of its faults, the Tintin movie feels like a Spielberg yeah, film in terms of the way that the camera moves. And for example, that huge wanna through the village, the action sequence, yeah. wonderful sequence in terms of like the way it's choreographed and the way it moves and you know how everything happens. This kind of Rude Goldberg effect. There's nothing in this film that feels like that, that feels like it's got that Spielberg stamp on it. In fact, I'd say it's lacking it. It feels more like a Marvel film in that it's been put together by previous artists so they can get to work on the material while the director comes in and starts shooting the live-action stuff. And it does make me think, like, I think he's been almost prioritised on this film for where his expertise is going to be put to best use. And during the action, it feels almost like there's this foot off the gas a little bit with Spielberg. Yeah, it sounds like he'd been overfaced with that because doesn't he say that this is the hardest film he's made since like Saving Private Ryan or something like that? <laughs> I would have taken the last action sequence to look like the Omaha Beach thing. Here you have like one of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles curled up on the floor crying to himself <laughs> while another one picks up its arm yeah. <laughs> and walks <laughs> off. <laughs> That's the film I want to see. Yeah. <laughs> and it has to be the Michael Bay ones. The Michael yeah. Bay Teenage Mutant Ninja yeah, Turtles. It has to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because I think about halfway through the film, Jess asked me who'd done this film, and I was like, Steven Spielberg, and she was like, really? Yeah. There are parts of it that definitely feel very Spielberg, but then, yeah, when you start getting into the Oasis stuff, it does feel very hands-off. You know, I'm going to make the post now, bye-bye, kind of yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, um, I did all of this stuff with two or three Zoom calls a week, you know, <laughs> yeah, it sounded like it was quite an intense experience because it said there was a lot of regular three hour meetings. Yeah. Uh, I think it was like three three hour meetings a week whilst he was doing the post to do the post on this film. That's not a pun, <laughs> but yeah, it just seemed like doing something that maybe he's not really that familiar with whilst he's making another film probably explains a, off a little bit more why. yeah i like spielberg in terms of like how he pushes himself and how he's always pushed himself even in his later life in terms of his understanding of technology but it almost feels like that kind of setup that he always has to do one of these and an adult orientated film afterwards or within the same year feels like he's pushed himself too far in that regard here because i don't yeah. think he's understood quite the demands that this film will going to require yeah and, you know, in those in-between times, he's just driving around the universe a lot in a golf buggy as well. So, you know. <laughs> Honestly, I feel that's what he does in his downtime. He must just do, drives yeah. around the universe. Have you ever seen that video where he does like a guided tour of the universe a lot in a golf buggy? No, I have not. <laughs> By the way, another little plot point that I noticed, just to go over a couple. One thing I noticed is, is it me or do all of these gamers live in the same town? 
Yeah. The whole point of the Oasis is supposed to be like bringing people together from all over the world, I thought. And it turns out <laughs> yeah. that they all live within like a yeah. six-mile radius of each other, maybe. The plot twist was like that Holiday was like, oh, yeah, I never expanded it outside of the my Columbus, Ohio, <laughs> outside of this area. Everyone else doesn't play it. <laughs> and the world outside is actually like outside of Columbus, Ohio was lovely. Just lovely. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I made this game just for the shithole. This is my hometown. (laughs) (laughs) That's the twist. The camera pulls out on the city. And it's like Escape from New York. It's walled in. They're all walled in. Yeah. (laughs) And one of my favorite lines as well is when a character says, when Parcival says to Ben Mendelsohn, a fanboy knows a hater. And I was like, uh, have you met fanboys before? Have you, <laughs> have you, have you ever met They usually a are the haters. <laughs> yeah. They are some of the most toxic individuals out there. Yeah. Uh, but no, a fanboy knows a hater. It's like, yeah, get him. Get him, girl. Oh, uh, dear. It's one of those, I will say as well, this film was picked. I picked this film, but I actually put it to a few people. Like, here's a list of films that I want to pick. Which one would you like us to do? And... Ready Player One was the film that was kind of like picked the most amongst them. More so, I think they thought it would be one to rip apart. And I've certainly threw out a lot of criticisms about it here. But I don't think it's that bad. No. It's just that it could be something more. Yeah. I think it needed just wittier writers. Because Zach Penn as well is also a writer on this film. And he came out, I remember reading an interview with him where he, he mentioned that I'm not your finished script guy. I'm your nuts and bolts guy. I'm the guy that you get to mm-hmm. come in and write a structure and an idea of a story. And then you bring somebody else to polish that up to where it needs to be. That's probably something he ever regrets saying. But he was brought in as one of the last writers to work on this film. Mm. And it feels like it's missing. That's where it's missing the most. That spark that it needs to be something more. Mm. I guess it doesn't help that the source material is as bad as it is in my opinion yeah again the fact that this film is is anywhere near what it is is just a testament to spielberg as a filmmaker that's best case scenario for this material but yeah i still think you could have got something wittier and funnier and satirical out of it this film flirts with but just doesn't go the whole way i mean i think also it helped with me that the buzz around the whole ready player one thing has gone now because i mean it's disappeared on it really i think ready player 2 killed it because it was so (laughs) negatively reviewed when it came out yeah that it killed the whole buzz for the property whether we'll see that sequel i do not know it's supposed to be in development but it might be one of those ones where they quietly shelve it well spielberg said that he would need about 10 years yeah i don't think it's something he would make anyway i think he would give it to somebody else but whether it will be made at all i highly doubt it and if it is i think it will be a sequel in name only in terms of using the story from that book yeah name only yeah and it'll be interesting because if they do make it because in one sense it's probably a bit more prophetic because this stuff is now starting to get into motion with the whole meta thing metaverse Mm-hmm. the gears are in motion for something similar to exist but whether we're at that point i do not mm-hmm. know and also whether people will interact with it 
in the way that they do yeah. in this film. I really don't know. Also, like the other question I have, what are the mechanics of how this works? Because the thing that made me laugh is um, if you don't have one of those travel boards, because you, know, you see people out in the street, don't you? And they're all fighting and stuff. Like, what yes, happens if you yeah. just decide to like, if you run into a wall, if you or if you run off a bridge, or you run in front of a car or something yes. like that? What's that about? <laughs> Why wasn't that played on at all? No, I wanted to see more of like people walking out in front of buses and stuff. Yeah, but in funny ways, kind of thing. I mean, that's where like Spielberg gets in the way of it because he's far too nice of a filmmaker. He, he wouldn't do something that cynical. But it's for example. In another film, in the Paul Verhoeven version of this, that Chinese banker jumps out of the window. Yes. That's the edge that it needed. <laughs> I needed to see like the real-world impacts of people being logged into this world while they're trying to do the day-to-day life. Yeah, I think you needed a more biting filmmaker. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There's a Jaws reference there. But yeah, you needed someone with a slightly more cynical worldview, I think, to make this film mm. and make it feel more of its own thing. I mean, whether or not it would be more successful and whether it would go down well with the fans of the book, I don't know. It's one of those things where it's like, the film's fine, and again, it's the best-case scenario of this shoddy, I'm going to say lazy, piece of writing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. It is, because the the way that it, it folds in these ideas is very... Here's another thing. Here's another thing. Here's a, it doesn't, means nothing to my plot or my story. It's just another mm-hmm. thing I can shove in. He's gone into that plagiarism middle ground. I don't know what, what you even class that as. Mm, yeah. But like I said, it, it wasn't awful. I, it's just not, nothing really sticks with you. And I, it's interesting that we've not mentioned any of the main characters outside of Ben Mendelssohn because no. the younger characters, because they didn't really. They weren't particularly memorable. They didn't really hit home or anything. No, no. And in fact, the only points that I do remember are bits where I was like, I don't like that. Like little holdovers from the book, for example, when Parsifal first sees Artemis in real life. Yeah. She's got her hair over the, the birthmark on her face. And he's like, oh, no, you shouldn't hide it. You look beautiful. But You know, whatever. And it's like... That makes the material feel so much older than it is because it's that kind of like, oh, well, she's been waiting all 20-something years of her life for you to come across and validate her finally kind of thing. (laughs) You know, that old bullshit. It's like, all that feels just so antiquated. Yeah, I mean, I don't feel like either the film or the book makes enough of who these people are in real life and what their avatars represent and... I think it would have been much more challenging to have done something with those characters versus who they want to be in the in the Oasis. Yeah. Because again, there's not enough contrast between the worlds and the people and their avatars. It's just No commentary. No. And I don't know that this the other weird thing, I'm not sure it's because it's a book thing, but who we haven't mentioned, he who will not be named, <laughs> TJ Miller. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, there's not much uh, misogyny or racism or homophobia or anything in the film. But then again, it does have TJ Miller, so I guess that covers all those bases. Yeah, he was like, very briefly, the uh, the Seth Rogen for the 2010s. <laughs> but you never see his character in real life. You don't really know what he's about. I mean, no. very thinly written character anyway. But I felt like there should have been um, some sort of big reveal as to yeah. what that character was. It's like, are they saving that for a sequel or whatever? But mm-hmm. it just felt a bit 
odd considering how heavily he's featured in the film that you don't really understand his motivations for a start yeah. as to why he's doing this and also like who he is and like whether he's just a 600 pound guy in his mum's basement yeah there's not enough play on that and ultimately with Parzival the big failure of him as a character is that all of his development in terms of um, him deciding to make a difference in the world comes in the last 30 seconds of the film this decision to for example close down the oasis for two days a week is such a kind of like it's a footnote yeah on the film he's not really other than maybe one or two lines he's not really in the rest of the film ever really interested in being somebody who changes the world he's just wanting to be the guy to do the mission to get this done to find all three eggs but in terms of him like being the savior for the world or anything like that, that's never really been part of his whole mission. I know that you're supposed to get something like that from him and Samantha getting together, but I don't feel like there's enough of her world in this as well in order to see that. Mm. And there's this one rooftop scene where they have this moment of, oh, because there's some flowers about, there's some bushes, they're like, oh, it's beautiful. And then it just shows you Birmingham. And you're like... <laughs> <laughs> what's beautiful about any of this the point of it should be more like what have we done what have we allowed yeah. i can't believe we've done this this kind of internal conflict there is never that kind of revelation there for him to go to that point of doing something so extreme as to close the oasis down for two days a week it's too wishy-washy with all of that and that's where it needed to work in order to be something more than it is yeah but the writers are never interested in that no it's all pop culture baby do you want to see Crash Bandicoot shag the Iron Giant? <laughs> well, this is the film! <laughs> Ready play one, After Dark. After Dark, yeah. Yeah. I'm logging in, baby, to watch Marty McFly throat fucking Battletoad. <laughs> yeah, George McFly's having sex with Darth Vader. <laughs> and Doc Brown's going down on General Grievous. <laughs> <laughs> the film's not awful by any means and it's you know they did a good job but yeah the whole thing's just very hollow yeah 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 and it's fine whilst you're watching it but it's nothing that's gonna stick with you i think i described it on its best day as being a sugar rush yeah where it's like if it works for you it's just gonna be that kind of like rush of sugar yeah and it's a kind of slow come down afterwards that hyperactive child going look at this look at this look at this yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so that's Ready Player One, and I guess it's time for us to move over to the stats and facts. Now, this is the part of the episode in which we go over the critical reception for the film and the box office, just to see how this film was received and to see how that lines up with our opinions of the film. So we're going to begin with the critical reception of the film. I'm going to hand it over to you, Andy, and you're going to go through some of the critics' thoughts for Ready Player One. Yeah, so it has a Rotten Tomato Meter rating of 72% and that's with a average of 6.8 out of 10 and the consensus is Ready Player One is a sweetly nostalgic thrill ride that neatly encapsulates Spielberg's strengths while adding another solidly engrossing adventure to his filmography probably slightly um overpraising it there yeah it's funny with these consensuses now because often they are a little bit premature because yes, I've seen quite a few recently where they've made their mind up and then it's 
actually slid one way or the other and it's like the consensus mm-hmm. is no longer valid so this might have maybe and i don't know whether it was more in the 80s when it first came out and then slid down a bit because it reads more like that than say a 72 percent score one that i have seen change recently is the indiana jones and the dial of destiny that went from being a very mixed consensus to one that's a mixed positive one right so, yeah yeah but i've also seen it before with films where it's like after 50 reviews they put up a consensus of it being like very solidly positive and then when it's yeah. been actually released to the general public and the reviews have come in it's they've had to kind of revise it completely i think it did that with the last hunger games film so the audience score is 77%, and that's from 25,000 ratings. So yeah, that's interesting that it's not any higher, because usually with stuff like this, it would be maybe in the 80s or 90s, especially with yeah. the pop culture stuff. So it is interesting that it is in that level. Yeah, because it's like, oh, it included this thing that I like, and that thing yeah. that I like, so blandly give it 5 out of 5. So the review for this week comes from... Empire, and uh, this is written by Jonathan Pyle. So he says, Spielberg switches the action between the real and virtual worlds with dazzling aplomb. I love that word, aplomb. Aplomb. Plum, plum, plum. (laughs) Seamlessly melding the peril in both states of reality and upping the stakes as the keys are uncovered and we approach the end game. (laughs) So (laughs) I put emphasis on end game. Um, End game. The film does occasionally get sidetracked by exposition. This is what an Easter egg is. Here's why the Atari 26000 game adventure is being used. And whilst it's momentarily frustrating, it is understandable. Warren Rubinet is hardly a household name. The other issue is with Mendelssohn, who does little to differentiate Sorrento from Rogue One's awesome Krennic, or The Dark Knight Rises, John Daggett. Disagree. I think that's kind of the point, though, isn't it? <laughs> but I think he's more fun here. Yeah, he is, yeah. Than either of those. But mostly it's a joy with Spielberg letting loose for the type of blockbuster movie making that made his name, but is increasingly infrequent in his filmography and shows that when he's on his game, there's no one else who comes close, and he gave it four out of five. God, how surprising Empire giving a film four out of five. Uh, yeah it's shocking like, especially a spielberg film they never do that yeah <laughs> <laughs> attack of the yeah. clones five out of five <laughs> <laughs> they're never ever 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 gonna live that down uh, no no i've I still got that the... issue somewhere somewhere yeah and to round this off the imdb is 7.4 so yeah it seems very 70 this week Mm, it does yeah which is all a little bit high i know that that's more of your kind of like middle of the road numbers for this kind of film but it's all a bit on the high side for me yeah Uh, now moving over to the box office i have some figures to go through here so i'll begin by giving the budget of 175 million dollars for ready player one now domestically this is the american box office made 138 million dollars And then a worldwide total, including the international market, it came to 607 million. Now, that also includes a re-release. The film was re-released during the uh, the time of COVID, and um, it made like a further 10 or 11 million. So the 607 is including that. But when it was initially released in 2018, it did open to number one with 41 million, but nearly 42 million dollars. Now, here's some of the films that are opened up against in that top 10. 
So at number two, you have a film called Acrimony, which I've never heard of at all. Then at number three, you have Black Panther, uh, which was in its seventh week of release. I think these probably knocked it off the top spot. Yeah. Number four was a film called I Can Only Imagine. Number five was Pacific Rin. Sorry, Pacific 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 Rim Job. Up your ass rising. Chris Waddle. At number six is that brilliant film Sherlock Gnomes. Oh no, is that the second one? Romeo and Juliet's the first one. And then Sherlock Gnomes. Oh my oh, word. Oh god. Why am I even questioning that? <laughs> it's because you're such so an Elton bad. John fan. Oh, I am. It's just like. It's like one of the few films that he's actually produced. <laughs> oh. At number seven is Tomb Raider. At number eight is A Wrinkle in Time. At number nine was Love Simon. And number 10 was Paul, Apostle of Christ. So, yeah, this is a mixed bag, that whole top 10, I would say. Yeah. And maybe 2018 wasn't the best of years. <laughs> mm. <laughs> but, yeah, so that brings us to that. As I say, it, it was a hit, but it wasn't like a smash hit. No, it was like a solid, modest hit. And it was certainly dwarfed by the likes of Black Panther. Yeah. So that, I guess that brings us to a, a close on Ready Player One. So Andy, is this a film that you would recommend? <sighs> it's a real tough one because, like we've been saying, it's not an awful film to watch. It's it's one of those films that's perfectly fine whilst you're watching it, but it's not going to stick with you. But having said that, there are many other Spielberg adventure films that you can watch that aren't saddled with this pop culture bollocks. Yeah. If anything, it made me like Tron Legacy even more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's a weird one. I'll say, yeah, just watch it if you're curious about it, maybe. But if you're someone who's going to be tired or switched off by the whole, you know, remember this, remember mm -hmm. this, remember this, then maybe, yeah, it's not for you. Yeah, I would say so as well. I mean, my thoughts of it are... If I go by my first, the first time that I watched it, and I gave it like three out of five, it's perfectly serviceable for what it is, and that is a achievement in itself considering the source material. And it's a bit of a sugar rush, but it won't leave a lasting impression, and you'll be hungry soon after. It doesn't replace a meal, you know. And there are mm. other Spielberg films out there, as you say, that can provide a more fulfilling experience. As I sit now and I talk about it, I've been a lot more negative during this episode, and that's because I've seen this film before, and I've, this is the third time along, and this isn't a film that is built for rewatches. Other than no. if you're the kind of guy that, or kind of person that just wants to pick apart references, or pause it here and there and, and look over the references and that kind of thing. I'm not interested yeah. in that, and that's all that this film really has going for it to a point. It's not going to offend you to have it on. I can't say I'd recommend it, but if you're interested, it's not going to hurt you. <laughs> it, you know, it's not offensively bad or anything like that. No. Or, I know some people do think it is. As you say, there are better films that you could be watching. But yeah, it's I, I'm in that middle road of the road myself with it. I can't say whether I do yeah. or not. <laughs> yeah. Depends on the yeah. person. I wouldn't watch it again now. That I'm done with Ready Player One. But yeah, maybe you aren't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
Okay, and that's all we have time for on this episode of Popcorn Digest. Now, if you join us next time, Andy's going to be choosing what we're watching. And Andy, I'm going to hand it over to you. What are we going to be watching for the next episode? Yeah, so next time we'll all be putting ice buckets on our heads and watching <laughs> The Island of Dr. Moreau. That wonderful, what the fuck is that movie? <laughs> I mean, it really is a what the fuck is that movie. Yeah, and there's so much to get your teeth into in terms yeah, of the making yeah. of it so yeah if you join us next time we'll be watching The Island of Dr. Moreau until <laughs> then I've been Gareth and um, my avatar name is Huey, Louie and Dewey <laughs> I don't know <laughs> so search for them on all platforms Pla- platforms? platforms <laughs> platforms <laughs> I do great mods <laughs> of your mum. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs>